dim and sluggish faith. In uh, verse 25 of Luke 24, we find that these tables are suddenly turned by this stranger. Cleopas and his friend had thought him to be dim and slow. Are you the only one, the only visitor here in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been happening here uh, lately, today, and, and, and leading up to today? But the unknown Savior with them now begins to turn the tables and to stand them up about their lack of what? Lack of faith. Lack of faith. Jesus uses two words here um, to reprove them, to rebuke them. When he says to them, O foolish men, the word anoyatas means to you are unmindful, you are being unreasoning. This is a word that Paul used in Romans chapter 1. Of uh, in verse 14, that I'm under obligation to bring the gospel both to the wise and this word, this foolish, the unwise. It really has the idea of being uninstructed, of being unintelligent, uh, untrained. He also uses it in a sharper way, probably in Galatians, when he speaks about, oh, foolish Galatians, but he's speaking to them as brethren. And in the pastoral epistle, we find this this word there, um, we were sometimes foolish. This word here that is in the Greek is a different word that, is, that we get the, the, uh, the term moron from. Moronic has a more ethical, uh, uh, rebellious, antagonistic element to it. Jesus uses a softer word here when he says to these disciples, O oh, foolish men. You are not thinking right. You are not thinking fully. You're not thinking well. And then he, in the same breath, speaks of their slowness of heart. He addresses first the mind, and now he addresses the heart as being slow or sluggish. It's the Greek word brodais, which is used often in a context of travel. If somebody is arriving slowly, they're traveling in a tardy way, they're not getting there on time. It's like they're on the 405. There's hesitancy, there's delay. Luke uses this root of the, this word in Acts 27.7 when the ship that um, Paul was on, they were near, was it, was it Crete, I believe? And they were staying underneath the island because of the coming storms and so forth. They were going very, very slowly. Peter uses this word um, to speak about how the Lord is not slack regarding his promises. He's not slow. He's not tardy in bringing his word to pass, especially regarding his second coming. His second coming will not be ill-timed. Um, as some men count slackness. There's the word again in 2 Peter 3.9. And James tells us that the godly are to be swift or quick to hear, but, and here's this word, slow to speak. Be late in your speech instead of being... Um, um, precipitous and being early with it that might cause uh, evil. Be slow to speak and slow to anger. So this passage actually illustrates what we studied this morning on faith. For it is in the arena of faith or belief that this unthinking duo, this slow-hearted set of disciples are reprimanded. The problem is with their faith. And see here how faith touches on both the mind and the heart. Our faith is not just intellectual. 
Christianity's faith is not some big, huge, egg-headed vision of just thought. But neither is it just our affections, our feelings, as some have redefined faith, as just being a sense of inner dependence, you see. It's a both and. So there are two things to be taken from this as he reprimands this lack of faith or this um, slowness of faith. And the first thing I would have you notice here, our Savior, while reproving them, sees their failures, but he also sees their faith. Just because they're having difficulties grasping these things and he will reprimand them and correct them, doesn't take away from the fact that they are still believers and Christ treats them accordingly. He doesn't treat them as unbelievers, but ignoring important things. Nor does he treat them as antagonists in heart to God or to his works, but tardy to respond as fully and freely and completely as they otherwise might if they were exercising the faith that they should. How unbalanced we can be towards others sometimes when we see a weakness in their faith and sometimes we can kind of just plaster them with a broad brush and say, well, you must not have any faith at all. Be careful with that. Follow your Savior in this. The Savior saw faith in their hearts and treats them accordingly. Beware of judging too harshly and making worse their dilemma than it is. Jesus knows our hearts, and he can see where even we may not see in our own hearts what is there and what is not there. And then secondly here, while not overbearing their minds and hearts further, he does not pass over their problems lightly either. He doesn't say, well, this isn't a big deal. You'll see the whole picture later on when once I reveal myself to you. No. He gives the right rebuke to their inward attitude. They should have been in tune with the scriptures. They should have been believing these things more fully, but they weren't. And he has to address that faithfully as a Savior and Lord who cares and shepherds his sheep. In other words, they're guilty of falling short of all that they should have had in their minds and hearts. Their minds should have been attuned. Their hearts should have been um, warmed to the realities of the coming of Christ and, and Jesus being the Messiah. And of course, that contributed to their confusion about what had taken place and their sadness at these events. But Jesus is about to reinterpret for them what they could not grasp at that point because of their lack of faith. Understand something here then, brethren. Not a one of us is free from this charge by the Lord. What disciple has a perfect mind to grasp all the profound depths of the word of God? And there are times that we, are, we are surprise ourselves. We say, well, I just didn't even see that and hadn't put that into practice in, in, in our life. We are dealing sometimes with bewildering riches of Christ. And so in those kind of a context, you can miss things. Um, But that, at the same time, is no excuse for being dim and sluggish to believe in our minds and our hearts. This is a sin of omission on their part. They fell short of the faith that they should have had. Here is the word of God on the one hand to prevent these failures of thought and attitude. But something prevented that word from getting into uh, their thoughts and their uh, faith. The irony in this, I hope that you maybe see this already, is, of course, that the very one who's reproving these twin failures in them is the entire and full answer to their dilemma. They're going, we're we're just lost in this. We can't see how these things are going to come together. 
And there before their very eyes is the very one who's the key to the answer that they so desperately need. They were thinking angels have said that he's alive. Women did not find the body where he was laid. The disciples saw the tomb empty as well. Hmm, what could all of this mean? As they look upon this stranger, their eyesight mysteriously blinded for a time, as we mentioned last week, as to who this one is before them, the very Christ, the Redeemer, the one who died and, behold, lives now forevermore to bring in a kingdom likely very different than what they were anticipating. We thought that he was going to bring in redemption and, and help Israel. Well, Israel was looking more for physical, temporal salvation when Christ was bringing something far greater. He was bringing the grace of God to save them eternally. It's interesting, I was talking to one of our members this morning about the word uh, in the Old Testament. Um, the Hebrew word for faith is, uh, is, is amath. And amath means um, um, support. And it's used for the idea of trusting in the Lord as your support. But if you Google that word, the Hebrew word amath on, on your smartphones, all of these Jewish pages come up and they say the word amath support means we support God instead of God supporting us have the whole idea of grace is just thrown out it's we who are already God's people and we support him instead of his being our foundation just a very sad twisting of a biblical word So before moving on, should we not notice the relationship between mind and heart here of thought and desires or affections of the heart when it comes to faith? The connection between your mind and your heart is not mechanical, but it's organic, if that's the right word to use here. I'm not sure it is, but it seems definitely better than mechanical. You don't live by just simply filling your brain with so many thoughts that somehow the, t- uh, the scales are tipped in the favor of your heart finally being moved to be desirous of what is learned. You've seen it in yourself. The mind sometimes is fully grasping some great reality of the Bible, but the heart doesn't necessarily respond like it should. And sometimes your mind, you're scratching your head, as it were, over some issue, But the heart is engaged and leaning towards the matter more faithfully, even though it seems to be walking a little bit in the dark. So we are inconsistent on the inside, our our mental side, our desirous side. The will is lagging behind. Sometimes the will is engaged and the mind isn't. It's remarkable how how, um, kind of we're going in three different directions at times. A dark mind and a warm heart. A bright mind and a cold heart are often the experience of God's people. And this all tells us how much we need the Holy Spirit in all parts of our soul, and not just in one or the other. And this, mind you, this is taking place in believers. Believers have this struggle. This is not something that's an inconsistency in the wicked. This is in us. And we should be striving to be consistent in all the compartments within, that everything within us is to be brought into conformity to Christ and to his word, that mind and heart, conscience and will 
are all to be pulling in the right direction by dependence upon the grace of God. How little can we do anything without the power of truth in our souls? The chances that we can walk with the Lord without this dynamic of the Spirit at work in us is, as R.C. Sproul put it, it's slim to none. And Slim left town a long time ago. You can't live the Christian life apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. The Savior now says that the problem was not merely one of faith, uh, of any old faith, but specifically faith in the Word of God. And he speaks about all that the prophets had spoken on this very matter. And not just what the prophets had spoken, but all that the prophets had spoke of specifically the Christ. And not just that, but that such a word about the Christ, authoritatively given, had not found its mark, not only in their thinking, but especially in their hearts, where it should have been ruling and protecting them. Or to put it in modern vernacular, these two disciples should have been sitting in their folding lawn chairs on that third day's morning with their popcorn and their praises ready, If you had been reading your Bibles, if you had been understanding what is to take place, you would have been ready for this. Well, it's here that the Lord straightens them out in their thinking by the word. And in their recognition of him in the thanks offered over bread, and in that their hearts were burning in them at this very time as he begins to open the scriptures to them, the spirit is beginning to work on their minds, on their hearts, as they begin eagerly to drink in these truths and begin to hear from the Savior's own lips, the resurrected one, the very truth that they needed to hear. Well, I'm so glad that this happened to them and that believers ever since have lived up to the full realities of the Bible happily ever after. But for the few of us who still struggle in mind and heart with the word of Christ and the Christ of the word filling us to overflowing, Let's take a few directions tonight as we begin to wrap things up. The first of three things I would put before you is how the living word is to ignite a living faith in you. The furnace is cold until the flame is lit. And the flame is the the word of God being brought across to us by Jesus himself. We are to be intentional in our Bible reading, in our devotions, Um, and mindful of how it's not just, it's it's a kind of a quaint little saying, it's not how many times you go through the Word, it's how many times the Word of God is really going through you. And are your devotions then, are your times in God's Word for the most part, are they times where you are seeking with your heart and mind intentionally to lay hold upon your God, upon your Savior? That's how devotions are to work if they are to be warm. The Bible is a mine of wealth. It is never exhausted. And yet how we treat it as though it is less and do not believe it as we should. Do we open the Bible with this attitude that God is about to speak to me and I need God to speak to me. I need to be, um, uh, have the living word igniting a living faith by hearing Jesus. And then secondly, the living Christ ignites that living faith. And it is as we are looking at the word of God that we're finding Christ himself. 
truly interacting with the living Jesus, aiming at having Christ's voice not only heard, but then ruling in our hearts richly. The Christ of the word is the point of our coming to the Bible for life and for nourishment. The whole Bible is in Christ. And we must always draw the things of the word from and through him. He is the source of the word. He is the subject of the word. Aim then, uh, aim then at being filled with the word and Christ in dwelling you mightily and profoundly. Don't aim at small things. Lord, fill this heart, not a little bit. Remember the Old Testament uh, illustration where, um, was it, Elisha was on his deathbed and he instructs the king to strike the arrows against the enemy, Syria. Uh, And so he strikes it just three times. And he says, why did you stop striking? Only three times. You should have struck it many times. And then you would have overcome your enemy. Well, he was rebuked. We're rebuked for only striking a little bit. Instead of aiming at a full, a fullness that is found through the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, mightily. Look at Paul. Paul was weakness in himself. But he said that what worked in him so mightily was the spirit of Christ through the word. Aim at that. Ask for that. And that brings us to our our third point. The living spirit ignites a living faith. It's the word that does it. It's Christ who does it. It's the spirit who does it. And this especially in prayer. You're surrendering your life up to the Lord. Your mind's being trained. Your heart's being molded. Your life as clay in the potter's hand. That is one of the most important prayers that we ever pray. Lord, give me your mind. Make my thoughts your thoughts. Make my attitude your attitude. Let this mind, this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Change me, mold me, give me a heart for these things. Give me a mind for these things. Help my will to respond like I should. And Lord, give these things so that I I am engaged with you, that I thrill at your voice that is tender and responsive to what pleases him best. I remember in a chapel at at college, I had, boy, such miserable chapels sometimes, such really bad theology. But there were some good ones every once in a while. I remember one message where the man just kind of hammered the same nail over and over and over again. God, give us a childlike faith. Give me a faith that that just receives your truth and acts on it. That's going to lead to maturity. But uh, when we have tender responses uh, to the Lord uh, for his best. And with that, that means that when you find those places in your life that are not childlike, that are rebellious, that resist him, those are times for you to stop and to dig, to take those poisonous parts out of your life and to cast them behind you through repentance, through being pardoned for those things in your life, and so to lead into renewed obedience. In other words, don't, don't be satisfied with lesser things. Come to the fullness that is in Christ through his word. Be dissatisfied with a mediocre, minimalist, I don't know why I put mutton-headed here, but it, it fits, mutton-headed reflection in the mirror. Don't just say, oh, well. Ask God again for the desire and the growth in these ways. A beautiful little poem I learned early on in my Christian life. 
if thou in vision could see the man that God had meant, you never more would be the man you are content. We are to be content with God and his providence. But I also believe that we are to be discontent with our sins and our lacks in our life, sins of omission and sins of commission. And this outlook of really being engaged with God, I think perhaps is captured no better than in the motto of the reformer John Calvin, a man who so fully laid out his life for the Lord and for his kingdom and suffered greatly for it and was used greatly in it that we're still just amazed at his output to this day. But his um, motto was this, my heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. That is worship unto God every day, not just on Sunday, even on Sunday nights. My heart I offer to you promptly and sincerely. You have a Savior who has suffered for you and has been exalted for you glory that follows. So be of good cheer. All of your failures does not remove your Savior from your life. He will always be your Redeemer. That is unchangeable in Him. Whatever is behind is behind. Leave it behind. Press on to the high calling that is before each and every one of you. Do not let those things of the past hold you back. Continue to look to the Redeemer whose mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness crowns every day. Let us give thanks. Father, we're grateful for the lesson we learned from these two disciples, Cleopas and his friend, and their uh, slow and, and foolish um, uh, faith, their lack there, and Jesus addressing that for us, pointing us to the word of God, the richness of it, pointing us to himself, that he is the centerpiece of, of the Old and the New Testaments and pointing to the power that comes through him by the Spirit, both to understand the word and to put it into practice. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have told us that you are the vine and we are the branches. And only as we are engrafted into you, as we enjoy union and communion with the living Savior, can we do anything. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So help us, Lord, to lean fully upon you and to build our lives upon this foundation of the good news, the evangel, the gospel, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to bless us, we pray, and be with us this coming week. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to follow the wonderful uh, instruction of the book of Proverbs, um, to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge you. And you, Lord, will direct our footsteps. You will make our path smooth. So lead us, Lord, into your fields, we ask, with green pastures and still waters as your sheep, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.